So, you know, you could say that John and Lucy really are abiding by the university's really strict anti-discrimination and diversity policies by refusing to write letters for recommendations for institutions that all of their students cannot study at. You have this major Jewish organization funding the work of anti-Semites to promote the interests of the Israeli state. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Coming up a little later, we'll hear from a researcher in Chicago who will talk about the funding by major Jewish communal organizations in the San Francisco Bay Area of the blacklisting website Canary Mission and a slew of other far-right-wing, anti-Palestinian, anti-Muslim, and homophobic groups. The research shows that the funding from the Jewish Community Federation goes back at least 15 years and amounts to more than $300 million. Stay tuned for that. But first, we look at a crackdown on academic freedom at the University of Michigan by its administration under pressure from Israel lobby groups. In recent weeks, two professors at the university have declined to write recommendation letters to two separate students seeking to join study abroad programs in Israel. The professors have cited Israel's discriminatory laws and policies of occupation and apartheid against Palestinians in their decisions to not write the letters. They've expressed their support for the call to boycott Israeli institutions as long as Israel continues to violate Palestinian rights. In September, after he declined to write a recommendation letter, Professor John Cheney Lippold received death threats, which were not publicly addressed by the university. But the administration did choose to comment on the professor's actions, charging him with interfering in the student's request with his own, quote, personal views and politics. Israel lobby groups pressured the university to discipline Cheney Lippold, claiming that his choice was an act of discrimination and anti-Semitism. In an apparent effort by the university to appease Israel advocates, an advisory committee declared in late September that a student's merit must be, quote, the primary guide for determining how and when to provide letters of recommendation. Just this past week, the university again bowed to the demands of Israel supporters, sanctioning him with the loss of his earned sabbatical for two years and no merit pay raise for the academic year. Cheney Lippold is being threatened with further sanctions if his politics guide future decisions about recommendation letters. Last week, another University of Michigan instructor refused to write a letter of recommendation for a student wishing to study abroad in Israel. Lucy Peterson said that she had pledged herself to a boycott of Israeli institutions institutions as a way of showing solidarity with Palestine. Earlier this week, she was questioned by the administration as well. Peterson also faces potential discipline, according to Palestine Legal. Joining us to talk about all of this is Radhika Sainath of Palestine Legal. Radhika, thank you so much for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you for having me, Nora. So first off, your reaction to the university's sanctions against John Cheney Lippold and the apparent concessions it has made to Israel advocates here. I mean, this is an alarming violation of the professor's First Amendment and 14th Amendment due process rights under the U.S. Constitution. As an employee of a public university, the University of Michigan, um, Professor John Cheney Leopold um, has full protections under the U.S. Constitution. Um, and that means that the university may not punish him for his viewpoint um, supporting Palestinian rights, 
or because he um, is taking this principled stance to support the boycott for Palestinian rights. And what's even particularly also concerning is the fact that the professor had no process whatsoever um, with respect to, to, to the sanctions against them. And by that, I mean, before you're punished, you know, as a, as a, as a public employee, you're supposed to get a chance to tell your story. You're supposed to get the chance to hear the evidence against you. Um, the decision is supposed to come in front of a neutral fact finder, neutral arbitrator before sanctions are, are handed down, if they are at all. Um, here, the university, you know, summoned John to a meeting, asked him a bunch of questions, and then, you know, a couple weeks later, he got this detailed letter saying that he was being punished. And for non-academics, I just want to emphasize the seriousness of the punishment. To lose two sabbaticals is a lot. I mean, professors use those sabbaticals to, um, to write their books and to write their papers. That's when they get to research and, and do, um, you know, do the work that, 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 that made them decide to become professors in the first place. And moreover, of course, there are, there are the financial damages of, of a loss of the merit pay increase. So this is a really, really extreme measure. Um, and I think it, it, it will have a chilling effect to other academics who are also um, contemplating doing the same thing or have been doing the same thing, but maybe um, n not in such a, an open manner as John has. So we're definitely watching this very carefully, and John is, is, is I think, looking into, into challenging this decision um, as well. Uh, let's talk about um, this, this punishment against John a, a little more in depth in, in terms of how it relates to the, the boycott um, campaign. As Columbia law professor Catherine Frankie, who was herself detained and deported from Tel Aviv earlier this year after Israeli border officers consulted Canary Mission to assess her political opinions, uh, she wrote on Facebook that, quote, like Michigan professor Cheney Lippold, I don't write letters of recommendation for students seeking jobs or internships in Israel because I have many students who are structurally disqualified from applying for those opportunities on account of being Palestinian. So university professors who have pledged to support the academic boycott call are essentially protecting their students from engaging in Israel's discrimination policies. Uh, how is the University of Michigan and other universities failing to protect their students here when it mandates that Israel be held to this special exception? Yeah, I mean, you know, essentially, I mean, it's well known that people of Palestinian or Arab descent are basically, you know, barred or discriminated um, by Israeli institutions. Um, we can see this by the recent case with Laurel Kassam, who's been in detention for two weeks um, because of, you know, while she's been trying to study abroad at Hebrew University, um, because, you know, on the grounds that she's purportedly been involved in campus organizing critical of Israel. So this is actually something very real and it's something that's happening right now. And the University of Michigan has very strong policies against discrimination and harassment. Um, and, you know, their own bylaws articulate a very strong commitment to maintain an academic and work environment free of discrimination and harassment for all students. So, you know, you could say that John and Lucy really are abiding by the university's really strict anti-discrimination and diversity policies by refusing to write letters for recommendations for institutions that all of their students cannot study for, you know, study at. And, you know, 
you know, these people have been really clear about this, that, you know, they wouldn't, or Josh, so John, John's been really clear about it, that he's, you know, he said that, that, um, you know, he wouldn't, you know, write uh, a letter for a study abroad program that discriminates against other people, blacks, or let's say um, women, or, um, you know, during, let's say, uh, the anti-apartheid regime in South Africa, he wouldn't have written letters of recommendation during that period either. Um, so it's really clear here that these professors are taking principled stances against discrimination and for Palestinian rights. They are not the only professors that have done this. As Catherine Frankie has said, she does this on a lot of different issues. She won't write letters of recommendation for judges or other people who discriminate against her LGBTQ students or who sexually harass. But what we see here is what we've seen time and time again, which is what we call the Palestine exception to free speech, is that when people do this because they are critical of Israel's policies or they're trying to support Palestinian rights, they are singled out for punishment for investigation and for punishment. And so this is deeply problematic and, you know, it not only infringes on the academic freedom of instructors, but also has a tremendously, tremendous chilling effect on political speech. We're speaking with Radhika Sainath uh, of Palestine Legal. Radhika, let's talk about the University of Michigan's new policy on writing recommendation letters to students solely based on their merit and not at the discretion of professors taking away their their decision-making process and their academic freedom to do so. What's the significance of this new policy? And, you know, as a friend of mine wrote on Twitter, if a teacher has to write a letter of recommendation based on a student's grades only, how is that different from grades? Exactly. I mean, you know, obviously, the, you cannot force professors to write letters of recommendation. I think that that, you know, eviscerates the whole purpose of letters of recommendation. I mean, do students really want these forced letters? But, you know, apart from that, you know, this ex post, you know, policy that was, you know, drafted sort of and came out in the, you know, the dead of night without any kind of review or input from professors, um, from the AUP or from others is really problematic. I mean, it definitely infringes on professors' academic right and discretion. That is what, you know, being an academic is, is about. It's about evaluating your students in part and deciding whether their research or, you know, so on has, has merit and whether they, they can recommend it. Um, and then also, you know, again, this is, this is, professors are not contractually obligated to write letters of recommendation in all instances, you know, that the university deems it to be, you know, by decree. Um, so, you know, this is problematic in, in a lot of different ways. It also doesn't make sense. And we really do see a lot of professors pushing back on this now. Professors who actually maybe, you know, don't support the boycott or, are, you know, um, you know, are, are not, you know, pro-Palestinian human rights, um, you know, are very upset about this, as they rightly should be, because it does infringe on, on their discretion and on their academic freedom. Along with John Cheney Lippold's position on not crossing the picket line, um, one of his colleagues, as you mentioned, uh, Lucy Peterson, has also taken a stand in, in it, and it seems she's also been threatened with disciplinary action by the university as well. Um, what concerns do you have about the upsurge of the ease with which lobby groups um, can use university administrations to censor and threaten professors? We saw, uh, I believe, 60 different Israel advocacy organizations writing letters to the administration, um, pressuring them to sanction and wow. discipline John and now Lucy. Um, what are your concerns here? 
I mean, it is frightening. And I'll say, you know, Palestine Legal, we, you know, we respond to requests from professors and students and from activists in the United States who um, whose rights are suppressed because of taking a principled stance for Palestinian human rights. And we've advised both John and we're currently advising Lucy. And these are public cases that your readers and your listeners are aware of. But for every John and Lucy, we have dozens, if not hundreds more of cases that come to us every year that are confidential and which we can't talk about. So I'll just say that it is very, very concerning the, the pressure campaign and the power that these lobbying groups exert over institutions, which are supposed to be places of higher learning, where professors should be able and teachers should be able to present issues of the day. And for every John and Lucy, we've had a few other professors and teachers um, this year, actually, who behind the scenes have contacted us and have said, hey, you know, I mentioned that, you know, a, a, a number of Palestinians were killed in Gaza yesterday. And now, uh, you know, a donor, a, 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 a student's donor parent is contacting the university and I'm being pulled in by my my by my supervisor, by my by an administrator to ask questions, um, to answer questions about this. So we've had several of these types of cases that are not public this year at a, universities across the country. Um, and it is really frightening. Um, and again, it just really shows that there is this Palestine exception to free speech in this country where you can talk about debate issues of the day as you should. Um, but when you are taking a stance for Palestinian rights, you are pressured, you're investigated, you're censored. And it's a really scary thing. I mean, Lucy especially is a graduate student, so she does not have tenure like John does and is in a much more vulnerable position. And um, she should be really commended for her act of bravery here. And we're currently waiting to see what the university will say. But given that her um, you know, essentially what she did was the same as, as what John did and both were, and John was, was, was punished quite harshly. We have to um, brace ourselves that something similar will happen in Lucy's case as well. Well, finally, what are the next steps for John and Lucy? You mentioned that John is looking at his legal options. I'm sure Lucy is as well. And, and how can people support them at the University of Michigan? Yeah, I would definitely encourage your listeners especially those who are alums of the University of Michigan or who have ties, to call, to write, um, email, you know, the university president and say that you support Lucy and John in their, um, in, in their decision to, to exercise their academic freedom, but that also um, you disagree with John's punishment um, and that, you know, they're watching this really carefully and, and they're really appalled by the university's behavior here. Um, so I would definitely encourage people to write and to call. Um, those kinds of actions really do have an impact. And for more on uh, Palestine Legal's work, especially as they're working with these professors at the University of Michigan and elsewhere to defend academic freedom and the right to speak out on behalf of Palestinian rights, you can go to palestinelegal.org. Radhika Sainath, you are a, an attorney with Palestine Legal. Thank you so much for being with us again on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs>
I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. In early October, an investigation by The Forward revealed that the Jewish Community Federation of San Francisco, the Peninsula, Marin, and Sonoma Counties, a major communal organization that funds Jewish cultural and community programs, has also been a top funder of Canary Mission, the anonymous blacklisting website that aims to tarnish the reputations of U.S. supporters of Palestinian rights. Recently released documents also prove that Israel's Ministry of Strategic Affairs has been using Canary Mission, quote, to bar political activists from entering Israel, according to the Israeli daily Haaretz, corroborating testimonies by activists, students, and human rights lawyers. The ministry is in charge of Israel's global war against the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, or BDS, movement, an effort that reportedly involves the use of clandestine black ops. This week, Chicago-based researcher Stephanie Skora, who's also a member of Jewish Voice for Peace, revealed that the Jewish Community Federation has not only been a top funder of Canary Mission, but of a slew of other far-right-wing, anti-Muslim, and homophobic groups going back at least 15 years and to the tune of more than $300 million since. Skora writes, quote, Outright fascists such as Geert Wilders, described by Time magazine as the Dutch Trump, and Turning Point USA, a group regularly aligned with white supremacists, feature prominently in the JCF's 990 forms, its compulsory annual filings with the federal government. Bizarrely, even organizations with deep ties to anti-Semitism benefited from the JCF's funding, such as the Tea Party Patriots Foundation and the Zionist Organization of America, which invited notorious Jew hater Steve Bannon to speak at their annual gathering twice. Joining us to talk about the significance of her findings amid the new revelations about Canary Mission and its funding structures is Stephanie Scora. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The revelations came out about the Jewish Community Federation mm -hmm. authorizing at least $100,000 to the Helen Diller Foundation to support Canary Mission through mm -hmm. some shady auxiliary organization named Megamot Shalom, which was found to be basically an yeah. abandoned building west of Jerusalem. Uh, after the Forward's report was published, the Federation admitted that it had, it had funded Canary Mission and said it mm -hmm. wouldn't do it again. Um, but less than a week later, you uncovered a trove of financial documents that prove that the Federation and the Helen Diller Foundation didn't just fund Canary Mission, this right-wing blacklist, as a one-time mm -hmm. fluke, but that it's part of a pattern of steady financing of really right-wing, anti-Muslim, anti-Palestinian, pro-hate groups across the country. Can you talk mm -hmm. about what prompted you to dive in here and what your research shows? Yeah, so I was prompted partially by the forward article that exposed the Diller Foundation as funding Canary Mission. Um, but the Jewish Federation of San Francisco, the JCF, um, also funds the pinkwashing group, A Wider Bridge. They're one of their large funders. They've given over $100,000 to them over several years. Uh, and I'm currently in the middle of doing some significant research on all of the Wider Bridge's funders um, because I believe that they're linked to the Islamophobia industry. Um, and that led me to the JCF. And I did quite extensive research on them, as my article shows. Um, and then the JCF led me to the Diller Foundation through the forward. Um, and so really, this was this was partially because I'm a committed anti-pinkwashing activist. I had a lot of this information already, and I'm compiling it as part of a larger report on a wider bridge's funders. Um, but the information that I found about the Diller Foundation, and then when I went back, I was able to find the, uh, the 2017 990 forms for the JCF. The information on there was just so explosive, I figured I should just put that stuff out right away because people need to know about this stuff. 
You published all of your findings on Medium.com in a post titled, The Jewish Federation of San Francisco and the Helen Diller Family Foundation Fund Far-Right and Anti-Muslim Groups, and I Can Prove It. Um, yes. <laughs> talk a little more about some of the other findings here. For example, the David Horowitz Freedom Center and the Foundation of uh, for Defense of Democracies, which you found received grants totaling uh, over $800,000 over several years, as well yes. as the, the Geert Wilders-linked uh, International Freedom Alliance Foundation, um, what have these organizations promoted exactly, and why is it important to focus in on their activity on their activities and the funding sources here? So all, all of the uh, organizations that I covered in the article, they came into three main categories. Uh, all of them were involved, though, in some way in anti-Muslim or anti-Palestinian uh, rhetoric, bigotry, and, and pushing anti-Muslim and anti-Palestinian narratives. Uh, there were the three main kinds of organizations were just out-and-out anti-Muslim hate groups, many of them appearing on the Southern Poverty Law Center's list of, of hate groups or associated with individuals who are anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant extremists. Uh, and then there were campus-based groups, which often work quite closely with these Islamophobic groups to push these narratives on college campuses, stifle pro-BDS and pro-Palestine activism, uh, and just generally vilify Muslim students on campus, whether or not they're associated with Palestine. Uh, many of the organizations that I covered have wild conspiracy theories about creeping Sharia um, on college campuses in major U.S. cities um, and go so far as to demonize student organizations which aren't explicitly political, like the Muslim Student Association, um, which I'm sure listeners to the podcast know uh, has been widely demonized as associated with the Muslim Brotherhood, despite the fact that that's not true. Yeah. And then the third category are like media watch groups and censorship groups, um, the likes of the American Media Institute, which is linked to Project Veritas, um, which came up during the Roy Moore election um, as trying to smear liberal media by putting out false sexual assault allegations. Um, this group called Honest Reporting, which harasses journalists that provide accurate coverage of Palestine. Uh, and then the Mid uh, Middle East Media Research Institute, Camera, and a whole slew of others. One of those categories that that you mentioned was, um, you know, the, the campus activism mm -hmm. um, organizations meant to 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 censor, threaten and target campus activists for Palestinian yes, rights, yes. including, you know, the AMCA initiative, the American mm -hmm. Israel Education Foundation, Hasbara Fellowships, Students Supporting mm -hmm. Israel. Uh, one of the most notorious, Stand With Us, which received more than 1.2 million, you found. Yes. Uh, the Israel Project, which received almost $2 million. The, and the Israel on Campus Coalition, Turning Point, like all, all of these organizations. Um, horrible, horrible groups that are all like very closely linked together. Right. Um, and that's mostly through the Israel on Campus Coalition as of recent years. They've really brought a lot of these groups under their, under their purview and have worked quite closely with Canary Mission um, and the people who run Canary Mission. There was... Um, this excellent article that the Electronic Intifada put out um, not so long ago that ex that was uh, the leaked clip of that, the um, the movie that was supposed to come out. Um, the Al Jazeera documentary. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and that, um, that article actually does a really good job of linking together all of these different organizations and how besides the JCF, they also share other funders, all attend the same conferences and work quite closely to develop and put out these blacklists. The, the Jewish Community Federation also funds, you know, um, not so right wing organizations, sort of, you know, more community organizations, hospitals, Absolutely. scholarships. Um, but they ha they do not fund any more groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, um, right. groups that that are more leftist or progressive leaning that mm -hmm. do take stands in support of BDS. So you have this 
Um, you know, on the one hand, they're supporting far right wing, very virulent, uh, you know, anti-Muslim, anti-Palestinian organizations, but have taken, you know, a a line against uh, Jewish Voice for Peace, for example. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that shows about um, where the priorities for the Jewish Federation lie right now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, it, it paints this really clear picture of where the Jewish Federation of San Francisco, the JCF, sees itself as part of larger communal life um, for Jews in the country and specifically in the Bay Area. Um, it really sees itself as um, ostensibly a, a PEP organization, but a PEP organization, a progressive except Palestine organization that is willing to go so far right on the question of Israeli sovereignty and the, the existence of the state of Israel and silencing and brutalizing even Palestinians who, who dare to exist on college campuses um, or in the media that the other progressive donations that it's made wind up getting wiped out. Uh, there's this really interesting thing that the, um, that the JCF has done, um, both by itself and through its supporting foundation, the, Hello Dill- the Helen Diller Foundation, uh, is that they're actually, uh, of all the Jewish charities that I've looked through, they probably are one of the top th- three or five givers to LGBTQ causes, which makes sense because they're located in the Bay Area, they have a lot of money, you know, those hand in hand, sort of, you're in the Bay Area, you're a big organization, you give to LGBTQ causes. But they also gave to really, really right-wing and explicitly homophobic organizations like the Heritage Foundation, which is notoriously anti-gay as far back as the Reagan administration and still to this day supports things as what would have become no-brainers like same-sex marriage. Um, and it's, it's really interesting that the Federation seems to be talking out of both sides of its mouth, um, giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to progressive causes. They even funded the Southern Poverty Law Center and ProPublica, which is where I found a lot of this information about them. There were a number of um, really interesting contradictions in their donations where they funded organizations that worked in directly to combat the hate groups they also funded. Um, and it really, I think, speaks volumes to where the JCF sees its political priorities, is it seeks to be this progressive Jewish organization that funds aspects of American life um, and progressive and liberal causes in the U.S., but as I said before, is willing to go so far right as a pro-Israel organization that they fund some of the nastiest people that the country has to offer, and in the case of Geert Wilders, the world. And these some of these people are known anti-Semites. And you run into this, this contradiction where you have this major Jewish organization funding the work of anti-Semites to promote the interests of the Israeli state, um, and you, you wonder, you know, what are these federations doing ostensibly behind closed doors, but then also completely out in the open and in documents that are a matter of public record. Um, and that, that to me says that they're not ashamed of this giving, despite the statements that they give out and the promises to stop funding Canary Mission. Like, do we need a promise for all like 60 organizations that they've funded on this list? Like, do they have to release one statement each? Like, where does it end? That's the voice of Stephanie Scora. Um, Stephanie, what do you hope your research, along with the recent revelations about the Federation's funding of Canary Mission, can do for activists, researchers, and advocates of free speech and human rights, especially on college campuses where this is, uh, has become a battleground, and especially in the American Jewish community? Yeah, I really think that this has the potential to do a lot of very important work in terms of the, not only the transparency of major Jewish organizations that claim to speak for their respective Jewish communities, those communities need to hold them to account. 
I'm quite sure that most of the Jews in the Bay Area would be horrified to learn that the JCF funded the Tea Party. Um, and the Bay Area being one of the most democratic-leaning places in the whole country, donations to, to the furthest right part of the Republican Party would be met with quite a bit of scorn from the community. Uh, and on college campuses, it's really helpful for students to be able to know when they're fighting against groups such as Students Supporting Israel, the Israel on Campus Coalition, or even just right-wing groups associated with their local Hillel, they, it's helpful for them to know where their funding is coming from, because often student governments aren't able to make that connection. And when they're faced with a JVP or an SJP chapter and this group that claims to represent all Jews on campus, they unfortunately wind up listening to the Hillel chapter more often than not. And so this is going to be a really good tool for student organizations to be able to say, look, these pro-Israel organizations are coming to you and claiming to represent these things, but their funding is coming from people who also fund these interests. And I think that really those connections, the like direct line connections between people like Geert Wilders, people like David Yerushami, um, um, Daniel Pipes, Steve Emerson, Frank Gaffney, these incredible bigots. Um, and funding that is going directly to, in many cases, Hillel's and pro-Israel organizations on campus will be a huge boon for pro-Palestine student activists um, to be able to point out very clearly to people who oppose them in student governments and school administrations that they're being hoodwinked. These groups that claim to speak for the interests of Jews on campus are in fact representing the Israeli state, and they have the right-wing funding to prove it. Um, and bigger picture, I really, I have this vision that, you know, the Jewish community can do better than these federations. They give all this money to things, but the federations don't get this money on their own. Every dollar that, the, that these federations get is from the Jewish community in some way, shape, or form. This is Jewish communal money. And the Jewish community is, doesn't want our money spent that way, at least the vast majority of us don't. And so I really envision this future where we're able to cut out these federations and stop using them as essentially the power brokers of the Jewish community and give, we can give Jewish communal money directly to organizations that we want to support. And so if people want to give to people like Daniel Pipes, the Middle East Forum, Camera, the Clarion Fund, or Turning Point, they should have to own that themselves. They should have to say, my name is X and I want to give my money to right-wingers and fascists rather than using the Jewish communal institutions who apparently are all too willing to do it for them um, to pass that money along. Uh, because there are a lot of organizations that would be more progressive on causes like prison abolition, um, fighting back against police brutality, Palestinian human rights, and Islamophobia, if it weren't for the Jewish federations who they depend on for funding, holding them to specific viewpoints. Again, uh, Stephanie Skora, her piece is on medium.com. The post is titled The Jewish Federation of San Francisco and the Helen Diller Family Foundation Fund Far Right and Anti-Muslim Groups, and I Can Prove It. We'll link to that uh, piece on the Electronic Intifada. And Stephanie Skora, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. And we look forward to more research from you in the, in the future. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. That's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. 
Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>